Stanford University. A knowledge of functional anatomy is obviously indispensable to me as a surgeon. Although a comprehensive detailed knowledge of anatomy may not be essential for every MD, the relationships and functions of the major structures must be known by every physician involved in the diagnosis and treatment of human patients. In this film, Dr. Snell, an anatomist, and I will demonstrate the gross anatomy of the human neck and parotid region. Examples of clinical utilization of that knowledge will be shown. Dr. Snell. Let us first outline the, uh, the head itself. We put in here the calvarium coming down into the neck. We bring the front of the head down onto the root of the nose and then onto the upper lip and then we draw in here the lower lip and the chin and here's the lower part of the neck and then we can just indicate here the, uh, the eye and then we can put in here the uh, ear and indicate the tragus and the concha here and the external hemiasis. Now what I propose to do is first of all put in in yellow the positions of the lymph nodes various groups of lymph nodes. We have an important group here which lies uh, superficial to the parotid gland called the superficial parotid lymph nodes. We have here over the mastoid process a group of nodes called the mastoid lymph nodes. These are the nodes that become enlarged uh, in German measles. And then right up near the apex of the uh, posterior triangle uh, we have a small group of nodes here called the occipital lymph nodes. Now underneath the lower margin of the body of the mandible uh, we have here a group called the submandibular lymph nodes. And we mustn't forget there is a small but important group here known as the submental lymph nodes. Now all these nodes will ultimately drain into an important group that lies within the carotid sheath uh, embedded in the carotid sheath on the outer surface of the internal jugular vein. And from here, the jugular trunk will drain down either into the right lymphatic trunk on the right side and into the thoracic duct on the left side. Well, now let us just see the fields which are drained into these particular nodes. Let's take the parotid group first. The superficial parotid group drains down in this area here. In other words, it drains the upper part of the scalp, the outer canthus of both eyelids, parts of the oracle of the ear down into the superficial parotid. Now we take the area here above the oracle of the ear and draining down into the mastoid region. So the greater part of the oracle is drained this way and across the upper part of the scalp also. And then we can take this area of the back of the scalp 
<coughs> which drains down into the occipital group of nodes. This leaves a very large area in front from this point here draining right down into the submandibular lymph nodes. And there usually is one small node in the buccal pad of fat there which may uh, drain some of this area. So we come down here, possibly through that node, and then down to the submandibular lymph node. So the whole of this area comes down in this way to the submandibular group. Now this leaves the center of the lower lip and the tip of the tongue and the chin which drain down into the submental nodes. Don't forget the tip of the tongue, the center of the lower lip drain into the submental lymph nodes. Now all these nodes ultimately drain down through into the deep cervical lymph nodes in this manner. So it is obvious that if a patient had, for example, a melanoma of the skin in this region, not only is it likely that it will spread down to the superficial parotid group, but also it is likely uh, to spread down through into the deep cervical group. So to completely eradicate this disease, one would have to do a block dissection of these nodes and the deep cervical lymph nodes. This patient has a malignant melanoma of the temporal scalp. Such a tumor frequently spreads to the lymph nodes in the catchment area described by Dr. Snell. Surgical removal of the melanoma in continuity with a block removal of the areas of normal lymphatic drainage offers the only possibility for cure. Such a surgical procedure will require block removal of the cervical lymphatics particularly the nodes along the jugular vein. In addition, the superficial lymphatics in the parotid gland area between the tumor and the cervical lymph nodes must be removed. A block removal of the neck contents in continuity with the superficial lobe of the parotid gland will be done. A knowledge of structures to be encountered in such a procedure and the function of each is mandatory. The anatomical structures which safely may be preserved will determine the disability and therefore the quality of survival of such a patient. This patient has a malignant melanoma in the skin lying directly over the parotid gland. The operative procedure indicated is the same as that outlined for the previous patient. In this film, we shall show the operative procedure on this patient and the outcome after surgery for both patients. Portions of the operation will be shown between discussions of pertinent gross anatomy. The entire neck area must be exposed widely by elevation of large flaps of skin and subcutaneous tissue. Before we proceed, let's discuss anatomical landmarks and the superficial structures encountered in elevation of the skin flaps in such an operation. So let us put in the important bony points. Uh, here we have the condyloid process, the mandible and the posterior margin of the ramus of the mandible extending into the body of the mandible. Uh, here we have the coronoid process and coming down here to join the 
uh, body of the mandible. And then behind that we can indicate the uh, external hiatus in the tympanic plate coming down and here's the styloid process of the temporal bone. Now extending back we find that we have the mastoid process of the temporal bone which sweeps up and become continuous there with a superior nuchal line of the occipital bone. So we can just indicate here, at this point here, the external occipital protuberance. Now we come down into the lower part of the neck and we can indicate the upper margin of the clavicle in this sort of manner, uh, articulating in front uh, with the uh, manubrium sterni. So if I just lightly put in here the anterior surface of the neck, we can indicate it coming down like this and indicate posteriorly the skin sweeping down into the uh, back of the neck. So these essentially then are the bones, the mastoid process, the stylo process, the lower margin of the body of the mandible and then below we have the clavicle and uh, the manubrium sterni. Now the first muscle I think we should put in is the trapezius. Now the trapezius muscle arises from the medial one-third of the superior nuchal line of the occipital bone and the external occipital protuberance up there and of course the whole length here of the ligamentum nuchi which extends down posteriorly. This ligament is homologous with the supraspinous and interspinous ligaments found lower down in the vertebral column. So then we can put in the anterior margin of the trapezius sweeping down and being inserted into the lateral one-third of the posterior border of the clavicle. So we can indicate the fibers coming off here, the uh, ligamentum nuchi, and extending down. The lowest fibers of all are going to go into the acromion process of the scapula. So now we're in a position to define the neck as seen from the side. Posteriorly it extends backwards as far as the anterior border of the trapezius. In front, it extends forward to the skin in the midline. Below, it extends down as far as the upper border of the clavicle. And above, it extends up to the lower margin of the mandible and goes up to the region of the mastoid process and the external auditomiatus. Now, the next muscle we should put in to understand this region is the sternocleidomastoid. This arises by a tenderness head from the manubrium sterni and the upper margin of the sternoclavicular joint and is quickly joined by a muscular head arising from the medial one-third of the upper surface of the clavicle. And the two come together in this lower part of the neck in this sort of way. Then the sternocleidomastoid, from its name, extends upwards across the neck, dividing it into two parts. So we put the anterior border coming up in this fashion and the posterior border coming up here and going on to the lateral one third of the superior nuchal line of the, of, of the occipital bone. So here we have a muscle then extending up from the region of the sternoclavicular joint and being inserted into the mastoid process and into the lateral one third of the superior nuchal line of the occipital bone. It is virtually divided the side of the neck into two triangles. A posterior triangle here and an anterior triangle here. Now just a word about this important muscle, the sternocleidomastoid. You can see from its attachment that when it contracts, it pulls the mastoid process down, the mastoid process here down to the sternoclavicular joint. In so doing, it pulls the head down and rotates the face upwards and to the opposite side. 
there is a congenital deformity known as congenital torticollis. Now, congenital torticollis is believed to be due to a hemorrhage into this muscle occurring during childbirth, and then this uh, hemorrhage, a collection of blood inside the sternomastoid becomes organized, fibros, and contracts. And so you see the child with the head looking in this direction. Well now, let us go through then the boundaries of this posterior triangle. Behind we have the anterior border of the trapezius muscle, below we have the middle part of the upper part of the clavicle, and in front we have the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid. Portions of the cadaver dissection will be run backwards to reconstruct the normal anatomical relationships. For example, I shall drape the flat platysma muscle over the superficial neck structures and reconstruct it. This muscle, innervated by the cervical branches of the facial nerve, acts to move the skin of the neck as in attempting to relieve pressure from a tight collar. It lies anterior in the neck and extends below the clavicle. Beneath the platysma, and the external jugular vein descends from the angle of the mandible to the clavicle. The skin and subcutaneous tissue is replaced over the platysma. And we may now review the external landmarks. The clavicle, inferior margin of the mandible, the posterior border of the sternomastoid, the anterior border of the trapezius, and the anterior midline of the neck. The same landmark with the neck open. If we go back and insert the omohyoid muscle in normal position, one sees that it divides the posterior triangle of the neck into an upper occipital triangle and a lower subclavian triangle. Now quite clearly there are structures here forming the floor of this uh, triangle. Let us put them in one by one. Now down below here we can just see a small part of a muscle which is coming down from the anterior tubercles of the transverse processes of the cervical vertebrae and is inserted into the scalene tubercle on the upper surface of the first rib. So that is the scalenus anterior muscle. Behind that we have a much wider muscle coming from the posterior tubercles of the transverse processes of the cervical vertebrae and also coming down into the upper surface of the first rib. This is the scalenus medius muscle. And so we can indicate it coming down in that sort of direction. Bearing in mind that there is an important exit here between the scalenus anterior and scalenus medius. And as we shall show, this is where the subclavian artery emerges and where the roots of the brachial plexus come into the lower part of the posterior triangle. So the levator scapulae comes down in this way and uh, the fibers disappear underneath uh, the anterior border of the trapezius. Now above this level, above the levator scapulae, we have in this region here the spinous capitis coming up from the post-vertebral group of muscles to be inserted into the outer surface of the mastoid process. And we can indicate it 
uh, in this way. So this is the splenius capitis. And then above, right up near the apex of the triangle, and I think you must assume that the sternomastoid, sternocleidomastoid has been separated a little from the trapezius, we can insert a muscle here, the semispinalis capitis. So that now we can see that the floor of the posterior triangle is formed from below upwards by the following muscles. The sclenus anterior, the sclenus medius, the levatus capitae, the splenus capitis, and the semispinalis capitis. And here we have our boundaries. Well now, I t to start with, we'll put in the nerves that pierce the trapezius and either pass up onto the back of the head or just become cutaneous in this region. Now the most important one is the posterior primary ramus of C2, and that is the greater occipital nerve. And below this, in sequence, we have the posterior primary ramus of C3, C4, C5, and C6. In other words, these will supply the skin dermatomes around this side of the neck. Now if we turn to the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid, we can see the following nerves coming around. And bearing in mind that these will be anterior primary rami, whereas these coming through here are posterior primary rami. The first nerve I want to put in is a small one, and it hooks around here and passes up to the ear, and this is the lesser occipital nerve derived from the anterior primary ramus of C2. And then a somewhat larger nerve comes around in this way, the greater auricular nerve, and this will not only go to the auricle and supply the skin of the auricle, but from the clinical point of view, it's important to realize that it goes onto the skin of the angle of the jaw and also onto the skin over the surface of the parotid gland. We learn that the sensory nerve supply of the skin is the trigeminal nerve. But don't forget this small area here over the angle of the jaw, which is supplied by the greater auricular nerve, which is from the anterior primary ramus of C2 and 3. And then below, we have a fairly large nerve coming round here, the transverse cervical nerve, or the anterior cutaneous nerve of the neck, derived from the anterior primary rami of C2 and 3. And it is this nerve that you would have to block if you were to do a thyroidectomy under local anesthesia. Coming down, quite superficial, over the clavicle, we have the supraclavicular nerves. And these are derived from the anterior primary rami of C3 and 4. In fact, we can say that at the angle of Louis here, which is the maneuver sternal joint, the sensory nerve supply coming down to this level over the point of the shoulder and over the chest is derived from the supraclavicular nerve from the anterior primary rami of C3 and 4. So we've covered the nerves coming through here and we covered the nerves going round to the front. Now let us consider the floor itself and the nerves across the floor. Before we put these nerves in, we must realize that these muscles are covered by a layer of fascia. And this is the pre-vertebral layer of deep cervical fascia. Because it's going underneath these supraclavicular nerves, which are quite superficial. So although we can see these muscles through this fascia, we must realize that the, the pre-vertebral layer of fascia is covering those muscles. Now coming down on the uh, levator scapulae, it's sclenus anterior, sclenus medius, levator scapulae, is a very important nerve, the spinal accessory nerve. And this nerve comes down in a line from the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid, embedded
embedded in this pre-vertebral layer of fascia and disappears under the anterior border of the trapezius. It is accompanied by two anterior primary rami, very small nerves, the anterior primary rami of C3 and 4. So that the trapezius muscle is supplied by the spinal accessory and by the anterior primary rami of C3 and 4. The spinal accessory has in fact passed through the sternocleidomastoid and has supplied it. So that the nerve supplied to the sternocleidomastoid is the spinal accessory and the anterior primary rami of C2 and 3, and the nerve supplied to the trapezius is the spinal accessory and the anterior primary rami of C3 and 4. Notice how this nerve is relatively superficial. Over the surface we have the investing layer deep cervical fascia, subcutaneous tissue and skin. And many a, an intern who is very keen to open an abscess has cut this nerve and unfortunately it has resulted in the trapezius being paralyzed and as you realize that up to a right angle you use your supraspinatus and deltoid but after this you have to use your serratus anterior and trapezius. So if you cut your spinal accessory nerve here you may be able to go up or right to this point but it's impossible to go up and uh, comb your hair for example. So it's important to know the surface anatomy uh, of this nerve. And the simplest one that I, I can tell you is that light, draw an imaginary line between the tip of the mastoid process and the angle of the jaw and bisect that at right angles and that will give the surface marking of that important nerve. In the cadaver, the accessory nerve is readily identified in the position described by Dr. Snell. During the surgical dissection of the posterior neck, the nerve is readily identified by the jump of the trapezius muscle in response to electrical stimulation. This stimulator is set to deliver regular intermittent bursts to the nerve. The section may then be carried to the floor of the posterior triangle of the neck to sweep the contents medially and upward. The small supraclavicular sensory nerves from the cervical plexus are cut at the level of the clavicle at the lower margin of the neck dissection. The sternomastoid is also sectioned along the clavicular line to allow access to the underlying jugular vein, carotid artery, and vagus nerve in the carotid sheath. After identifying the vagus nerve and separating it from the jugular vein, the vein safely may be ligated and cut without injury to the nerve. The omohyoid muscle is cut across low in the posterior triangle of the neck and is reflected upward as the posterior triangle contents are swept upward from the fascia overlying the muscles of the floor. And we can put in the important brachial plexus. Now the brachial plexus arises from the anterior primary rami from C5, 6, 7, 8 and T1. So here we can put in C5 coming down here 
joining up with the C6 to form the upper trunk of the brachial plexus. Notice that 5 and 6 are emerging in this little interval here between the sclenus medius and the sclenus anterior. We can now put in the nerve to the rhomboids, which passes out here and passes deep to the beta scapulae, supplying the beta scapulae and then going down the back to supply the rhomboid muscles. We can put in here, from where 5 and 6 unite together, sometimes called Herb's point, the point where the upper part of the brachial plexus can be torn when the arm shoulder is violently turned down and the head pointed the other way, such as uh, a breech delivery where it's difficulty in removing the head and the head is pulled over and the arm is pulled down. You could easily tear the upper part of the brachial plexus here where five and six unite. Here we have coming off the suprascapular nerve. Now the suprascapular nerve passes underneath the trapezius and then it's going through the suprascapular fossa, um, the notch into the supraspinous fossa to supply the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus muscles. And another nerve, which is not very important in, the, in terms of the muscle it supplies, the nerve to subclavius, uh, the subclavius muscle just steadies the sternoclavicular joint, but this nerve is important clinically because it may provide the accessory phrenic. In other words, if you want to paralyze the diaphragm, not only do you have to uh, crush the phrenic nerve, but you must be sure that there's no accessory phrenic coming off the nerve to subclavius. Well, now below that, this is C5, C6, we must bring down C7, which forms the middle trunk of the brachial plexus. Coming out between sclenus anterior and sclenus medius. And then right down in the corner here, we have C8 coming out and joining, out, uh, joining up there with T1 to form the lower trunk of the brachial plexus. So then we have, in the lower part of the posterior triangle, the roots of the brachial plexus and the trunks of the brachial plexus. And although we can't see this, the beginnings of the division of the trunks of the brachial plexus. Now I think it is time for us to put in some of the arteries in this region. And if we start with perhaps the lesser important ones we have here coming up from underneath the uh, sternocleidomastoid, a branch of the uh, external carotid, the occipital artery and it's going to supply a large area of the back of the scalp. And then, of course, coming to the other extreme, by far the most important artery, we have here emerging from between the sclenus anterior and the sclenus medius, in front of the lower trunk of the brachial plexus, this very important artery, the subclavian artery. Now this is passing over the upper surface of the uh, first rib, and at the outer border of the first rib, it will become uh, the axillary artery. So this is the situation then here, behind the sternocleidomastoid, where we have the scalenus anterior coming down in front of the subclavian artery, dividing it into three parts. The first part is medial to the scalenus anterior. The second part is behind the scalenus anterior. And the third part, which we can see here, extends from the lateral border of scalenus anterior to the outer border of the first rib. While we're thinking of the subclavian artery, we should just indicate that down there behind the clavicle, we can just see the subclavian vein. This has passed in front of the sclenus anterior, so we can indicate it like that. Now, are there any other arteries in this region? Well, you may remember that there arises from the first part of the subclavian artery in this region, which we can't see, 
the thyrocervical trunk. And this gives off the inferior thyroid artery going up in the neck, but also gives off the transverse cervical artery and the suprascapular artery, which crosses this posterior triangle and crosses uh, the brachial plexus. In the cadaver, the subclavian artery may be seen emerging from behind the anterior scalene muscle, behind the medial one-third of the clavicle in the subclavian triangle. The brachial plexus nerves are evident in the same plane. Here are the anterior primary divisions of C5, C6, C7, C8, and T1. These constitute the roots of the brachial plexus. During radical neck dissection, one must avoid injury to the brachial plexus roots and trunks. Electrical stimulation of the brachial plexus results in contraction of various muscle groups in the upper extremity. As one stimulates different trunks of the brachial plexus, different muscle groups act to position the extremity and move the peripheral parts. So here is the posterior belly of the omohyoid extending from the region of the suprascapular notch across the posterior triangle to its intermediate tendon which lies deep to the sternocleidomastoid. Now to complete this picture one must really put in the uh, hyoid bone and we'll just indicate its position here. Here's the greater corneal, here's the region of the lesser corneal and here's the body of the uh, hyoid bone rubbing out this uh, uh, cutaneous nerve. So now then we can put in the anterior bit of the omohyoid which is emerging here and coming in this region like that. So you can see that the anterior bit of the omohyoid is lying here and that at an angle the posterior bit of the omohyoid. Now we've run about the structures that lie deep to this. Suprascapular artery, suprascapular nerve and transverse, the transverse cervical artery that is across here and now we can put in the lower margin again. Bearing in mind that these two are connected together by an intermediate tendon that lies deep to the sternocleidomastoid and binds it down to the back of the clavicle. Well now we mustn't forget to bring down the nerve to subclavius. Here it appears and it passes down in front of the uh, third part of the subclavian artery and lies behind the subclavian vein. Well now we're in a position to see that we have two triangles. An occipital triangle and a subclavian triangle. And you can see that the important contents of the subclavian triangle are the subclavian artery and the roots and trunks of the brachial plexus and their branches and the transverse cervical and suprascapular arteries. Now if I go on to a, a small picture over here and uh, look at the 
uh, investing their deep cervical fascia, I think this will explain how the roof of the posterior triangle is formed. If then uh, I show here the trapezius in section indicating, say, this part of the trapezius, and here in front the sternocleidomastoid cut across, then if we put in a mass of muscle here to indicate the prevertebral muscles here, then we can put in the prevertebral layer of deep cervical fascia and indicate the position of the spinal accessory nerve here, here embedded in this fascia. Then we can bring round the investing layer of deep cervical fascia. It splits to enclose the sternocleidomastoid and then comes back as a single layer across and divides to enclose the trapezius muscle finally fusing with the ligamentum nuchi behind. So this region here is in fact the posterior triangle. And you're looking in here at the contents of the posterior triangle here. I would add, before we put in this investing layer fascia, that this is the upper trunk of the brachial plexus, and usually the fifth root can be seen above the hyoid there. All right, so then we'll indicate that we have here coming across and roofing over the whole of this area, splitting uh, to enclose the trapezius, having united behind the sternocleidomastoid. So here it is coming across the roof of the posterior triangle. And now we can uh, bring down an important vein, the external jugular vein. Now the surface marking of the external jugular vein is from the angle of the jaw to the midpoint of the clavicle. And it is formed at the apex of the parotid salivary gland by the union of the posterior auricular with the posterior branch of the posterior facial. You may remember the anterior branch of the posterior facial unites with the anterior facial to form the common facial, and that goes into the internal jugular vein. So here we have the posterior auricular and the posterior branch of the posterior facial coming down across the sternocleidomastoid and across the investing layer of deep cervical fascia, which is forming the roof. In other words, we'll see it here and coming down and then piercing the investing layer of deep cervical fascia here over the posterior triangle, over the subclavian triangle, and then finally entering there the subclavian vein. Now, some of its main tributaries we'll put in is the posterior uh, external jugular, it's a small vein coming down the posterior margin of the sternocleidomastoid, and we can indicate here the transverse cervical vein that pierces the investing layer fascia to join it, and the suprascapular vein. And now, just to complete this picture, we can put in the supraclavicular nerves, which you remember emerged there, pierced the deep fascia, and so we see them coming out and coming down over the clavicle in this way to supply the skin down as far as the level of the manubrium sternal angle. Now, as you can see from this drawing, I have removed the investing layer of deep cervical fascia to expose once again the floor of the posterior triangle, leaving in the spinal accessory, uh, the 
brachial plexus and the third part of the subclavian artery, and I've re-put in here the posterior bed of the amohyoid. We have cut out a large segment of the sternocleidomastoid, but I've indicated its boundaries by this dotted line. And now we're going to attempt to build up the anterior triangle, uh, connecting up the anterior triangle with the posterior triangle. Now you may remember that the anterior triangle, we said, was bounded in front by the skin in the midline, and I'll just indicate it going down in that fashion. So that forms the anterior border of the anterior triangle. The posterior border of the anterior triangle is the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid. And above, the third boundary, is the lower margin of the body of the mandible. So let us now build up the uh, bones and cartilages for the larynx to begin with. If we put in here in front the body of the hyoid bone and the lesser corneal of the hyoid bone and the greater corneal and indicate it in that way, we have already got in position the styloid process uh, so we can bring down the stylohyoid ligament onto the lesser corneal. And now below that, uh, in, in this region, uh, we have the uh, thyroid cartilage and we can indicate the lateral lamina of the thyroid cartilage in this way with the superior corneal coming up in this way and the inferior corneal uh, coming down below. And then we can indicate the oblique line on the lateral lamina of the thyroid cartilage in that way. Below this level, we have the cricoid cartilage which is signet ring in shape, being narrow in front here and extending back and becoming wider here and articulating laterally with the inferior corneal of the uh, thyroid cartilage. And then below that level we can indicate the rings of the trachea in this sort of way, coming down and disappearing below the uh, sternomastoid. Uh, so that we are now in a position to put in the thyrohyoid ligament and the thyrohyoid membrane, the cricothyroid membrane, which you remember the upper margin turns in, it doesn't is not attached to the lower margin of the thyroid cartilage, but turns in and its thickened upper edge forms the vocal cords. And then we can just indicate here the uh, position of the membrane of the trachea. So here is the trachea going down like that. Well now, extending from the body of the hyoid bone up to the symphysis menti, you have the raphe, fibrous raphe, which extends down to the insertion of the mylohyoid muscle. So we can put in now the mylohyoid coming down from the mylohyoid line on the inner surface of the body of the mandible and extending down into this, to the body of the hyoid bone and then extending forwards into the fibrous raphe meeting the fellow of the opposite side. This is really the diaphragm of the mouth and is supplied by the mylohyoid branch of the inferior dental uh, nerve, the anterior division of the, uh, uh, the uh, mandibular division of the fifth. Well now we must put in uh, here the hyoglossus arising from the greater corneal, uh, greater corneal of the hyoid bone and passing up over the stylohyoid ligament and disappearing behind the mylohyoid. Well now I think we're in a position to put in uh, the constrictors. We'll put them in very lightly because after all this is going to have to form the background to this uh, drawing. You may remember that the superior constrictor arises from the lower part of the uh, posterior border of the medial pterygoid plate 
amphimeterigomendibular ligament. So we'll just show the upper border of the superior constrictor there, and then we'll indicate the posterior margin here. So we can put it in here, like this, coming across, lying medial to the stylohyoid ligament and the styloid process, and coming off the posterior now of the mylohyoid line sweeping downwards and disappearing behind the sternomastoid. So this is the superior constrictor of the pharynx. Now the uh, middle constrictor of the pharynx arises from the lower part of the posterior margin of the stylohyoid ligament and the upper part of the greater cornu, in other words, deep to the hyoglossus. So all we shall see of that are the fibers sweeping up here, overlapping the lateral surface of the superior constrictor. So we rub out part of the superior constrictor there. And the fibers then sweep down uh, in this fashion and uh, the lower border of the uh, middle constrictor put in here and we filled in the structure of the middle constrictor. Now the inferior constrictor arises from the oblique line on the lateral lamina of the thyroid cartilage and from a fibrous arch extending from the lower part of that line down to the cricoid so that we can now put in the origin of the inferior constrictor and it passes up again overlapping the lateral surface of the middle constrictor and we can indicate the posterior margin coming down here and the lower margin of the uh, inferior constrictor there. So we better rub out the structures that lie deep to it. So here's the lower margin and so here is the inferior constrictor and I think we should rub this out here, this is part of the stenomastoid margin. Now, I don't want you to feel that uh, there are great holes in the lateral wall of the uh, pharynx. We must obviously fill this in with the pharyngeal aponeurosis, and this indicates these gaps are in fact uh, filled. Down below here, we have the esophagus, which begins behind the cricoid cartilage, and is coming down here in front of the vertebral column. So we just indicate the longitudinal muscle of the outer part of the esophagus there. All right, well now before we go any further, we must clearly put, give some idea as to the position of the vertebral column. And I propose to do it this way by putting in solid white here behind and sweep it down behind the pharynx in this way. And behind the esophagus, sweep it right down here. So now we're in a position to put in the origin of the uh, sclenus anterior coming down like this. Alright, so there's the uh, sclenus anterior and coming round from the lateral margin of the sclenus anterior uh, we have the phrenic nerve arising from the anterior primary rami of C3, 4 and 5 and this passes round onto the anterior surface of the sclenus anterior and is going to disappear down there and going to eventually cross the first part of the subclavian artery uh, on the medial border of the sclenus anterior. We should now, having put in the phrenic nerve down the anterior surface of the sclenus anterior, indicate that there is coming down in the same plane the cervical part of the sympathetic trunk coming down in this region on the anterior surface of the sclenus anterior. Now, you will notice that by putting in the lateral edges of the transverse processes of the cervical vertebrae, we can now indicate the origin here coming off the back of the posterior tubercles of the transverse processes, the scalenus medius, 
and we can also indicate that in this region the beta scapulae comes off from the posterior tubercles of the upper uh, cervical vertebrae. Uh, now, before we forget, we must put in here the cricothyroid muscle. Now, the cricothyroid arises by uh, two parts. An upper part here, which goes into the, from the arises from the lateral surface of the cricoid cartridge and goes underneath this fibrous arch into the lower border, lower part of the thyroid cartilage. And then a part that comes back here and is going to be inserted into this inferior corneal of the uh, uh, thyroid cartilage. Contraction of this muscle will cause tension of the vocal cords. Now up here we can fill in this space by putting in the thyrohyde muscle. And thyrohyde arising from the bleak line of the lateral line of the thyroid cartilage and going up here into the lower margin of the body of the hyoid and the greater corneal of the hyoid band. Well now we should uh, just check down here to see that we have this phrenic nerve in its correct position. Yes, it's running down in front of the splenous anterior muscle and we must bind it down by this uh, artery here, the transverse cervical artery, which divides at the anterior border of the scapulae, and then put in here the suprascapular artery, which uh, goes through the suprascapular notch uh, above the suprascapular ligament. So the phrenic nerve is bound down to the front of the sclenus anterior. The scalenus anterior muscle is seen here. Its origin is the transverse processes of C3, 4, 5, and 6, and it inserts on the first rib. The phrenic nerve is prominent on its anterior surface. Behind the scalenus anterior is the subclavian artery. Medial to the phrenic, the cervical sympathetic nerve. They lie behind the carotid sheath on the transverse processes of the vertebra. Note the branches to the cervical nerves. The inferior cervical ganglion, or upper part of the stellate ganglion. Now the vagus nerve has been replaced. and we shall reconstruct the carotid artery. The carotid artery. Its relationship with the vagus nerve Descending on the carotid sheath is the descendant cervicalis from C2 and C3. The jugular vein may now be replaced over the ansa to become the third occupant of the carotid sheath by joining the carotid artery and the vagus nerve. Here is the intact jugular vein. The ansa cervicalis, joining the ansa hypoglossi to innervate the strap muscles in the neck. 
The proximal end of the accessory nerve may now be seen piercing the sternomastoid muscle which it innervates before it continues to become the major motor nerve to the trapezius. The phrenic nerve with its origin at the anterior division of the fourth cervical nerve and receiving some branches from the third and fifth. The cervical plexus nerves which pass superficial behind the, and the posterior border of the sternomastoid muscle. These are purely sensory and are here being cut in the radical neck dissection to mobilize the neck contents upward. In this case, the need to sacrifice the accessory nerve is demonstrated. As one sees this lymph node close to it and behind the sternomastoid. The accessory nerve is sacrificed. Note the jump of the trapezius muscle. The phrenic nerve is preserved. If the phrenic nerve is stimulated, the surgeon feels a tonic contraction of the diaphragm through the chest wall and may see the effect of sudden increase in negative pressure on the neck contents behind the clavicle. The anesthesia bag suddenly diminishes in size with stimulation of the phrenic nerve. Crossing anterior to the phrenic nerves, superficially over the scalenus anterior, is the transverse cervical artery from the thyrocervical trunk of the subclavian. Here it is being replaced. And then it will be covered by reconstruction of the omohyoid muscle. Well, now we're in a position uh, to bring up uh, the carotid sheath on the side of the pharynx and esophagus and in front of the transverse processes of the cervical vertebrae. And the first structure I'm going to bring up here in front of the uh, sclenus anterior here is the common carotid artery. And we're going to indicate its position here, the common carotid artery coming up uh, deep to the sternocleidomastoid. So we can rub out the structures that lie uh, medial to it and behind it. We can put in here this common carotid artery. Now the external carotid artery is one of the terminal branches of the common carotid, so we'll bring the common carotid up through the side of the neck, lying in front of the vertebral column here, the transverse processes, and in front of sclenus anterior, and in front of the phrenic nerve and the sympathetic trunk, and we bring the common carotid up to the level of the upper border of the thyroid cartilage, and then from there, we can carry the external carotid up where it passes up behind the 
uh, neck of the mandible, and there it's going to bifurcate into its two terminal branches, the superficial temple and the internal maxillary. So here's the external carotid coming up here, and we can just rub out the structures that lie medial to it. So here's the external carotid. So the external carotid lies in front and medial to the internal carotid. Now here's the internal carotid coming up here, overlapped by the stenocleidomastoid, and then passing deep to the styloid process and going up to the base of the skull where it'll disappear into the temporal bone through the uh, carotid canal. And it's in this region that the uh, internal carotid usually has a small dilatation of the carotid sinus. Well now we shall put in the uh, anterior uh, and posterior bellies of the digastric. The anterior belly of the digastric arises from the inner surface of the body of the mandible near the symphysis menti. Here, overlapping the mylohyde, which I'll now rub out, is the anterior belly of the digastric. And then there's a, an intermediate tendon, which is bound down to the junction of the three, the, the, the greater corneal, lesser corneal body, by a sling. And then we can put in the posterior belly of the digastric, which is, arises from the medial surface of the mastoid process. And so we see it coming out here and crossing the uh, carotid vessels so that we can now rub out the structures that lie deep to the posterior belly of the digastric. Now the anterior belly of the digastric is really part of the first branchial arch and is supplied by the mylohyoid branch of the inferior alveolar division of the anterior division of the, uh, the mandibular division of the fifth, whereas the posterior belly of the digastric is part of the second branchial arch, and as we shall see, it will be supplied by the seventh cranial nerve. The digastric muscle, with its sling attachment to the hyoid bone, is readily seen. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.